Welcome to the Fantasy Canon Podcast, where we discuss the classics of fantasy fiction from yesterday and today. I'm your host, David Charlton. And I'm your host, Chris Whedon. Thanks for joining us. And today we're going to be discussing a high overview of the fantasy genre. We're going to call this episode Tolkien and Beyond and Before, a high overview of the fantasy genre. Now, the thesis of this episode is going to be how Tolkien is the spine around which fantasy as a body of work is constructed. And while he is not the creator of the genre, his influence has helped to develop it and mature it. Please be advised that there may be spoilers. Uh, we will talk about the stories and uh, the people who wrote them um, just in a very broad, general way. But uh, if you're not familiar with what it is that the genre is about, you may learn some things that uh, you didn't want to know ahead of time. So here's your warning. So we are going to begin with the man that most people will recognize as the fantasy author of the 20th century. Obviously, we're talking about J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, now, this is not necessarily going to be a podcast about J.R.R. Tolkien. There are really good podcasts about Tolkien out there, um, and we could recommend several of them to you. Uh, there's the Tolkien Professor podcast uh, by Corey Olson, the Prancing Pony podcast, um, and the Legendarium podcast, just to name three. Those are all fine podcasts that really dig deep and go into who Tolkien was and who he wrote. Um, what we are going to do here today is take a, a, a little bit of a, um, a, a higher overview of all of that so that you have it for those of you that are not wanting to go in and listen to hours and hours of conversation about J.R.R. Tolkien. We're just going to tell you um, some, in general, some brief information about who he was and what he did. Um, so... We'll start off by talking about the man, J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, Chris, um, you're you're a relatively well-informed reader of fantasy and fantasy fiction. Um, what do you know about J.R.R. Tolkien? Um, the Ballantine books were my first introduction to Tolkien, where it had his paintings on the front and uh, his uh, Oxford picture on the back with a short blurb about who he was. And I just thought he was this interesting old dude that was just, it was amazing. It all captured my imagination. So I had to find out a little bit more about him and found that he was a professor of language and that he had written The Lord of the Rings to um, give his language a story, a history. And it was a fortuitous grouping uh, as evidenced by so many people loving his books. I also know that he was a uh, devoted father to his son, uh, who the Hobbit, I believe was started for to tell a story to his son. And it just, the personal facts about Tolkien and the professional results that he ended up with being published were just remarkable. Uh, for someone who was interested in something like that and to know that there were so many other people who felt the same way as me, as, as I said, evidenced by the popularity of it in books and movies and in print for so many years, um, that you can't help but feel his presence in so many different places. Now, I am not the most current reader of fantasy. Uh, David is, and course he's got a love of Tolkien that's just as deep or much deeper than mine so what do you got to say there Dave 
Well, I, I would absolutely, thanks, Chris. Thanks for sharing that. But I would, I would absolutely say that those are the main points that um, most casual readers of fantasy fiction today would, would really know about Tolkien. Um, and I know you know more because I, I know you've read the Humphrey Carpenter biography. Um, but it's really helpful, I think, when talking about the fantasy genre to really know a little bit more about Tolkien as a man uh, and a little bit more about um, what he wrote and how he wrote it. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, I, one of the things that always surprises people is because they always think of J.R.R. Tolkien as the quintessential Englishman is to learn that he was born in South Africa. Um, he was born in Bloemfontein, South Africa, and I believe it was the Orange Free State um, back then. It was before South Africa was a country like we know it today. Um, and uh, he was born to a father who was a bank manager and um, a mother who, um, her name was uh, Mabel, and, and they, they actually both came from the, the UK, uh, from England, and um, they they relocated to South Africa because, uh, Arthur. I, I think I said the father's name was John, I beg your pardon, his father's name is Arthur. So, um, Arthur Tolkien got a job as a bank manager. Um, so they went over there, and that's where Tolkien was born. His brother Hillary was also born in South Africa. Um, they came back for a vacation and while they were away on vacation, his father died and he never went back. So when he was very young, he, he grew up, he did grow up in the, in, in England, um, in the, uh, the Birmingham area. He went to Oxford, um, and studied as Chris said, he was, he studied languages. Um, he was what we, we call a philologist. Um, I think that term is a little old fashioned today, uh, but that's what he was. He studied philology. Uh, he was a veteran of the First World War, um, shortly before which he married his his wife, a, a woman named Edith Bratt. Um, they met um, because they both lived, they were both orphans, and they both lived at um, um, a, um, a, a woman's, I guess it was like a boarding house. Um, Tolkien and his brother lived there um, because their mother died uh, of diabetes when she was... Um, uh, when she was very young, and of course the children were much younger, but his he he grew up under the uh, ga uh, guardianship of a Catholic priest, um, and that Catholicism um, was also what informed much of Tolkien's writing um, for the rest of his life. He his uh, the the family the Tolkien family were not Catholics; they were. The, the family that his father was from, that is. They were staunch Church of England folk. Um, but um, when, his, when his mother came back to England, she did convert. And um, that conversion made her an outcast among her own family and her, her, um, her relations on the Tolkien side. Um, but so when, uh, you know, obviously Tolkien went to, went to Oxford very famously and, um, right around the time that the first world war broke out. And he, uh, like many others of his generation would later, uh, enlist and fight in the war. He is a veteran of the battle of the Somme, which is one of the deadliest battles in world history. More and more people died on the, during this battle than just about any battle in history. Um, uh, Tolkien came back. Um, he was invalided back to England um, and spent months uh, recuperating in hospitals 
with his new wife. His first son was born shortly after. All during this time period, he was thinking about the myths and legends and poetry that would later become Middle Earth uh, and the Legendarium. So um, now the, the interesting, um, so when, when we talk about The Hobbit, um, The Hobbit was uh, composed as bedtime stories for his children. And he had four of them. Uh, his eldest son, who was born uh, shortly after Tolkien was um, uh, invalided home to England for the Zenard, uh, because of his injury. Uh, that son's name was John. Uh, John would later grow up to be a, uh, a Catholic priest, by the way. Um, his middle son uh, is Michael. Um, his third son is Christopher. And his, and I think Christopher was born in 25? Uh, no, 24, 24, 1923, 24. And his uh, last child was a daughter named Priscilla. Um, and uh, both Christopher and Priscilla um, were alive until fairly recently. Christopher died last year. Priscilla died this year. Did you know that, by the way? Did you know that Priscilla Tolkien recently died? I, I did not know that. I had I had known about Christopher, but I did not know about Priscilla. Yeah. Um, and I, both of these, uh, specifically Christopher and, and Priscilla, were really involved in keeping the works and life and memory of their father alive. Um, Priscilla. Uh, and rightly through, so. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Pr Priscilla did a lot through the Tolkien Society. And um, Christopher, obviously, in his stewardship as his father's literary executor. Um, but you mentioned that uh, the, the Hobbit started as a bedtime story for Christopher. Um, and that's that's true in as much as Christopher was one of the three children that he started uh, reading the books to. Um, Priscilla was a little young. She never really got the, the Hobbit as a bedtime tale. And as far as we can tell, the, the Hobbit was composed sometime in the late twenties and to the mid thirties. And he very, very famously gave it to a, his publisher and his publisher gave it to his, his publisher's name was Stanley Unwin and um, Stanley Unwin gave it to his son and said, look, here's a kid's book from an Oxford Don. Um, why don't you do uh, uh, do a book report on it? And the son, whose name was Rainer Unwin read the Hobbit and he had, um, you liked it. And he wrote a, a pretty famous report on it saying that it would appeal to most children ages seven through nine. Now, of course, Rainer Unwin at the time was 10. <laughs> um, so I, I think that says a lot about um, his sophistication as the son of a publisher. Um, but uh, the Hobbit was accepted for publication. It was eventually published in the UK in 1937 in September of 1937 later uh, in the United States, just a couple of months later in the U S um, and it was, it was pretty popular, um, both on both sides of the Atlantic. So popular, in fact, that, uh, in December of 1937, um, Stanley Unwin was already writing to Tolkien about, uh, writing a sequel. Um, and that started the gears rolling for Tolkien. Um, and he, um, that's when he developed the story for the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I know that there is a long history involved in the publishing of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, so if you could uh, give us some background into that, that would be awesome. Yeah. 
So Tolkien started The Lord of the Rings in December of 1938, and he uh, pretty famously worked on it for um, you know the next 15 years, really trying to bring that to um, some sense of uh, cohesion that he can get it published. He um, he would eventually publish the um, uh, the book as a trilogy, not because that's how he wrote it, but because of paper shortages in uh, the United Kingdom and because it was felt by his publishers that publishing it as one uh, one book would just make it too expensive for most people to buy. Um, so we would later publish the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers in 1954, and he would publish The Return of the King in 1955. Um, and what, what Tolkien wanted to do was to publish the Silmarillion with the Lord of the Rings. Um, and he, 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 because as he was writing, when he wrote The Hobbit, he did not envision The Hobbit as happening or occurring in the same milieu that his Silmarillion legends were developing in. The, the myths and stories that he had begun uh, shortly after the First World War. So in the 19 teens, going on through the 20s. Now remember, it was, you know, at least... 10, 15 years before he started The Hobbit, and he'd already been working on things like the um, Ainulindale or the Valaquenta, uh, the story of the Silmarils. Um, so when he started working on The Lord of the Rings, he kind of reached back and he realized, well, the ring was the thing I was going to sort of use as the bridging material between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And then he realized, well, the story as it occurs in The Lord of the Rings really becomes part of the legendarium that he had been developing. It made for a very deep, for very deep world building. And it felt like there was really depth in history there. And he felt like he really could not publish the Lord of the Rings without also, or first publishing the Silmarillion. Um, unfortunately, the Unwins, who were his publisher, first it was Stanley, and then the 10-year-old who gave that book report on The Hobbit, Rainer Unwin had, had grown into... Um, a man at this point and um, was uh, taking uh, a, a, a large part of the publishing work on himself and he became Tolkien's personal publisher. Um, but they, they felt that it wasn't appropriate to publish the Silmarillion. Um, and for a very, for a significant period of time, Tolkien actually thought maybe he would go to a different publisher. He would, um, reach out to a man named Milton Waldman um, to try to make a deal with uh, a different publishing house to put the Silmarillion and, and publish the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings at the same time. That that did not come to pass. Um, and he did publish with uh, um, the Unwins again. So um, that came out in the mid 50s and it was considered a hit. Uh, no small um, uh in no small way due to the, the review of C.S. Lewis, W.H. Auden, a famous poet. Both these folks reviewed the Lord of the Rings very favorably, and they um, really contributed to its success in hardcover in the U.K. and in, um, in the United States as well. Now, um, what, uh, what is most significant about the publishing um, of the Lord of the Rings is that um, up until the mid '60s, it did not, it was not published in paperback. Um, it uh, 
that that came when an American publisher, um, a, a man named Donald Wolheim, who was uh, an editor for Ace Books, Ace Paperbacks, which um, was really a significant publisher of science fiction in America at the time. He wrote to to Tolkien asking if they could, if Ace could publish the Lord of the Rings in paperback. And Tolkien actually had a pretty famous response. Um, uh, he, he was, it was a very negative response. He told Donald Wolheim that he would never uh, allow his works to appear in quote, so degenerate a form as a paperback book. So <laughs> there's a little of the Oxford Donish snobbery in, in that response. I think Chris, have you seen the ACE paperbacks of Lord of the Rings? Um, if you describe this cover to me, I might be able to say yes or no on that, but I don't, they're, they're yeah. not striking me as being current in my brain. Yeah. So what, what's, uh, what's, uh, it's significant about that is because obviously Tolkien said no, um, to Ace, to Donald Wolheim. He said, no, I, I would never allow my works to be published in so degenerate a form as paperback books. Um, Donald Wolheim did it anyway. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like theft or piracy of uh, intellectual property. Um, but as it turns out, there there was some sort of copyright loophole in the way that um, Houghton Mifflin uh, published Tolkien's works in hardcover uh, in the United States that Wolheim was able to take advantage of. So he did publish the first paperback editions of The Lord of the Rings. And I think it was 1961, maybe? Maybe it was 1965. And either way. Um, but the, the, the covers are fantastic. They're actually, um, the, the Fellowship of the Ring has got a red cover. It's got a picture of a, the Fellowship with Gandalf in the front being very prominent. Uh, the Two Towers has a picture of a, a, a Nazgul on riding a fell beast, which really just looks like a horse with wings, uh, which is not how Tolkien describes it. <laughs> um, and Return of the King has a picture of what looks like another Nazgul behind a a spire that might be Barad-dur. Um, of course, the Nazgul could also be uh, Sauron. Um, but uh, the, the covers, I, I point out the fact that the covers are really uh, good because obviously that infuriated Tolkien and um, it infuriated Tolkien's um, official licensed publishers as well. Um, so in order to recoup the losses and these books were selling like crazy, um, everybody wanted a copy of the, the Lord of the Rings in paperback at this point. And that's sort of where Tolkien's popularity explodes. This is the mid sixties. Um, not a lot of people could afford to buy, uh, books in hardcover. Now everyone could buy Tolkien's work in paperback. Now Houghton Mifflin obviously wanted a piece of that revenue. Um, so Tolkien rather furiously, <laughs> Uh, did a revision of the the text of the Lord of the Rings enough uh, of a revision for him to renew his copyright, so he was able to have um, uh, his paperback publishers, who turned out to be uh, Ian and Betty Ballantyne. Uh, the Ballantines eventually would publish the Lord of the Rings uh, very quickly after Ace published theirs uh, in America. And um, I, Chris, do you remember what the back cover? of the Ballantine editions of the Lord of the Rings was what, why that was kind of interesting. Um, there was some sort of um, 
disclaimer on the back cover that, that it, this was the only official publishing of of the Lord of the Rings or something to that effect. Right, right. T- Tolkien actually had a quote on the back cover that said, "If you know readers have any respect for writers living or dead, that they'll buy the only authorized copy, authorized edition of the Lord of the Rings, meaning this one." So um, they they sued Walheim. Um, um, but I, I think Walheim actually settled out of court and a settled out of court. Um, and they would later would pay back royalties and, and, you know, money to Tolkien and to Ballantyne. Um, but the, the impact had been made that publication of the paperback edition of the Lord of the Rings made a splash in, in publishing and in the genre that we are still feeling the ripples of, uh, today. Well, that's a pretty good metaphor, huh? Sure. With trilogies being the standard method of delivery for fantasy books, just about any kind of series right now, uh, just the popularity of it. And the people that are in decision-making positions now are the people that grew up reading that or their kids read that or they saw the movies or, you know, so it's it's just a tremendous explosion from that one little defiance of social norms and publishing it anyways, just to find out it was going to be huge. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, You want to talk a little bit about the adaptations of uh, Tolkien since, uh, since the 1960s? Um, Yeah, I've, uh, I've, been a consumer of Tolkien media as young as 10 years old. And the first place, the first two places I saw uh, Tolkien come to life in front of me were uh, Ralph Bakshi's movie, uh, which covered basically uh, the Fellowship of the Ring through about halfway through the Two Towers, and the Rankin Bass cartoons, which, if I remember correctly, um, we had a hobbit and then there was the return of the king so if i remember correctly as kids we used to use the whole thing together we would use the rankin bass hobbit the bakshi first book and a half and then the return of the king to actually have kind of a sort of trilogy to to watch in front of us but um I don't know what anybody else thinks of uh, the Rankin-Bass cartoons. I-, I was glad that they were made, but they always seemed a bit, um, I don't know. They they didn't fit the grandeur that I had in my head after reading The Lord of the Rings. And while I was glad to see them, it was less of a, um, yeah. what's they the were best kinda, way to describe they were, it? They were kind of kiddie. They were uh, really for kids. Yeah. Would yeah. you describe And that was the audience they were going for. Yeah. Now the Hobbit is as a kid's book. It's definitely for kids. Um but it could be enjoyed and consumed on so many levels. Um um you can enjoy it as a as a kid, you can enjoy it as an adult, you could actually enjoy it as uh you know someone from a more academic bent who's really looking at some of the things that he's doing. He's in conversation even in the Hobbit with a lot of the, um, the original sources and influences of things, things like Beowulf. Yeah. And to have, uh, 
um, to have any kind of representation outside of the pictures you dredged up in your mind while you were reading, um, it was just confirmed things, how things were said, how you thought they played out or how you would have done it and they did it. And, oh my God, how come you did it that way? Cause that's not the way that I saw it. So it's always interesting consuming the different types of media after you've already read the source. Um, yeah. Audio books, audio dramas. Uh, there, there's. I still think somewhere in my house, I have the twelve cassette tapes of the um, the, the Mind's Eye Brian Sibley audio drama. Ah, oh, okay. So I, that I think great. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the the BBC Brian Sibley one is fantastic. Uh, that's a full cast yeah. recording. Um, it's not. A, it's not. Um, it's not like an audio book in the way we think of them today. It's. Uh, it's an audio play. It's an audio drama, um, where they have actors playing parts and sometimes speaking aloud the like the stage direction. <laughs> um, but that that holds up even even now. Um, a, a fantastic production and adaptation. Um, what did you think of the? Did you like the Bakshi version? Um. I- I forget how old I was. I must have been, I don't know, 11, 12, something like that when it came out. And I saw it in the movies. And oh, you, it was... You were, you were eight. It came out in 78. Did it? Yeah. Huh. Okay. A year after Star Wars. I remember Wars. being kind of young. <laughs> yeah. It was, it, was strange. it was strange. I'll tell you that. Uh, regardless of how old I was, it was strange. And I enjoyed it for the story that it told but the the rotoscoping or whatever uh, um, process that he was using on that where he was using right it was jarring yeah it was jarring so right right it, it was uh one thing i will give it it was not disney-fied which um oh no right, right and and i think you know tolkien had a, a pretty big animus against Walt Disney. So that at least was gratifying uh, for, uh, you know, the, the survivors <laughs> of the, the Tolkien uh, family, the Tolkien estate. Um, so uh, the Hobbit, the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, I liked. I, I think that was appropriate, um, uh, an appropriate adaptation. The the, the Bryant Sibley audio drama, First Class. Um, the Bakshi... I, the Bakshi version scared the heck out of me. There were parts of that that were truly... Uh, really terrifying. Um, I think like the, yeah. mainly around the ring wraiths and the, the scene in yes. um, the prancing pony where they, they, uh, they attack the, the hobbits in their beds, except spoiler yes. alerts or they're not in the beds. Um, <laughs> and just like, you know, some of the other stuff, like the, the way he filmed that or animated, that was really kind of cool. Um, but you're right. There was just something that was not perfect about it. By the way, did you know that uh, Thomas Kincaid did a lot of the background um, drawings for that for that movie? That's right. I and, did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Thomas Kincaid, famous quote painter of light um, of many calendars, and um, I don't know. He does a lot. There's a lot of stuff Thomas Kincaid stuff out there now. But anyway, he got he got that was one of his earlier credits. Um, but uh, obviously, when it comes to adaptations, Tolkien adaptations, the the gold standard to today has got to be the um, the Peter Jackson films. Um, when I say the gold standard, I really mean the um, the Lord of the Rings films. The Hob- the Hobbit films are kind of kind of a little bit different in their um, varying quality. 
Um, and also what I mean when I mean gold standard, I don't necessarily mean that they are the best adaptations that could be made of the Lord of the Rings, um, but they are good for what they are. Um, it's, this is not the point of our episode right now to kind of break down what the, the pros and cons of the, the Peter Jackson films, um, except to say that I think we both really enjoy them. I'll say this. You've already mentioned that uh, gold standard does not mean the top shelf effort that they could have put in to made the movie, make the movies. So I will make this point here. I am very, very, very glad that these movies were made, that they were received as well as they were, and that so many more people were turned on to Tolkien than I ever thought possible. I knew I, I knew I had a big army behind me when I said Tolkien. I could go anywhere and slap that name down and somebody would go, yep, I know what you're talking about. But now I could go places that I would never be able to get away with that. And they go, oh, yeah, man, I saw Lord of the Rings. That was awesome. So for, from that point of view, I am super glad that those movies got made. And, and to be even more honest, the first time, the first one, when we went to go see Fellowship of the Ring, um, I did not tell uh, my wife or my children that it was the first of three movies. And I, they sat quiet and they were young too. I mean, only one of them was a teenager. The other two were tweens. So, um, they sat for three and a half hours and watched that movie didn't squirm, didn't get up and go to the bathroom, none of that. And when it came to the end, they all went, what do you mean it's over? I was like, <laughs> oh, well, there'll be another one next year and another one the year after that. And they said, do you mean I got to wait two more years for this? I said, yes, yes, you do. And it will be worth it. Can you imagine being a reader back in 1954 and finishing that last chapter of The Two Towers where... Um, Sam is throwing himself against the doors of Kirathungal, and the last line is, um, I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right, but Frodo was alive but taken by the enemy. And then having to wait more than a year for the next book? No. No. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I-, I, learned a lo- I learned a long time ago, reading fantasy novels, series, to make sure you check the book before you buy it, because if there's more books and they're not all out right now, you're going to be mad when you get to the last one and go, what? What do you mean? That's the end. There's more. Oh, my God. I got to wait. So, yeah, I, I couldn't do that, man. I, I would be climbing the walls. Um, there seems to be a lot of um, Northern European and Germanic influences in the uh where he was coming from. Um, of course he took from places in his home isles as well, but, uh, uh, his mythologies always seem to have, uh, heroes and powerful monsters and evil villains and just bigger than life. Um, where you would find like in Norse legends or, uh, you know, the Celts or the Germanics, they, they were all, uh, they had powerful Thor and Perun and, um, you know, just, yeah. Yeah. So I've run out, but, um, yeah. So (laughs) no, I mean, but you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, Tolkien was drawing on the, the rich vein of Scandinavian and Germanic, uh, and English stories and myths and legends, um, he, he, um, you can see a lot of, um, 
the the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, specifically the Hobbit, and things like Beowulf or the Legends of Sigurd, um, or the Nibelungit, um, in um, you know, T- Tolkien was not afraid to really kind of mine the, uh, the these types of things for his subjects. Um, he really was inspired by things like um, that sort. Uh, he he was an admirer of Celtic myths and legends. He took he took as his inspiration a lot of uh, the language of Sindarin from um, from the the Celtic languages. Um, he really admired the the works of Finnish. Uh, folk tales and and legends um, that were um, compiled in the early part, the latter part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century. Um, in the Kalevala, um, we can see how, for instance, um, the story of Turin, Turinbar, really is an echo of the story of Kalervo in Finnish mythology. Um, some really great books have actually been written about this. Notably, the most the most recent one, um, you know, not that long ago, I believe, was edited by Verlin Flieger, who is a fantastic Tolkien um, scholar. Um, you see a lot of uh, like influence of Greek mythology when you think about the the Valar, um, in terms of how the you know the Valar uh, are involved in the affairs of uh, of mortals. Um, you get a lot of that that. Norse mythology that rag the, the 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 respect for and the significance of trees in Norse mythology the world trees and the tree at which um, Odin hung uh, and had his eye plucked out in, in, in exchange for wisdom um, you hear uh, echoes of Ragnarok in the the doom of Mandos and how the 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 history of the world is really encompassed in the song of Iluvatar. Um, so a lot of, a lot of that stuff really comes through in, in reading uh, not just the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, but also in the, the Silmarillion. Um, Tolkien had a lot of influence from things like um, Andrew Lang's fairy books, the, um, the collection and Andrew Lang. Do you, do, you know, do you know who Andrew Lang is by the way, Chris? I do not believe I do. So Andrew Lang is sort of a, an English version of like the, of the the Brothers Grimm, where he collected all of these myths and legends and fairy stories from across the world and published them in you know I don't know there's dozens of of volumes that he put out. Um, as far as um, more or less contemporary writers that influenced Tolkien, we're looking at people like William Morris, who was. Um, William Morris was a guy who lived shortly before Tolkien. He's in the mid 19th century. Um, he was uh, originator of the, the 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 crafts movement in England, or one of the uh, original people in the crafts move- movement. Um, but he also wrote some really significant books that um, uh, they, they had a vague northernness about them. But they took place in secondary worlds, and you could even see in William Morris's work references to places like um like Mirkwood. Um I think that that's a specific call out in um in William Morris's work that um Tolkien would would later borrow. Uh and to and to Tolkien's credit, um I think like Mirkwood for instance was more of a a some kind of like a platonic like ideal of the dark forest rather than a you know capital M Mirkwood. Um 
whereas he used it in a more specific sense. So Tolkien was also inspired by the adventure stories of folks like H. Ryder Haggard. He wrote uh, King Solomon's Mines and uh, She. Um, and he would read out the, the adventures of Alan Quartermain is that's Haggard. That's H. Ryder Haggard. But even deeper than that, you know, going back um, to what some scholars of fantasy literature would call taproot texts. Uh, and I'm, when I say taproot text, I think I'm quoting a man named John Clute. Uh, John Clute wrote, uh, he writes extensively, uh, uh, and he still writes, um, but in something called the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, and he also wrote the Encyclopedia of Fantasy. Um, the one has been updated quite a lot, um, the, but the Encyclopedia of Fantasy, I don't think has been updated since 1997, but you can access that online now. Um, but if you can find a copy of the book in paperback or hardcover, absolutely, you should go do that. But he talks about these taproot texts, these texts that every writer of fantasy is drawing something from, right? Um, these taproot texts would be Homer, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the Aeneid, the Bible. Um, and then he would later extend that to works like the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, the Mort d'Arthur by Mallory, um, works of Shakespeare, Goethe, Spencer, Milton, um, and even um, Bunyan later on. Um, so, I, and I think when we talk about, um, you know, that stuff, um, like all of that is in Tolkien's head. It becomes part of the English schoolboy education. So he's got all of this. And when you combine that with the Germanic and Norse and Finnish and Celtic inspirations, that's that melange is where you get the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and um, the Silmarillion. But, um, you know, again, we, we come back to our, our statement at the beginning that Tolkien may be the spine around which fantasy as a body of work is constructed. Um, but there are other body parts, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's as <laughs> elegant uh, analogy as I made before, but, um, but uh, <laughs> so there, there are writers who are writing in fantasy that don't necessarily owe anything to Tolkien. We're talking about, you know, folks like who are drawing on the same taproot texts, folks like Mary Shelley, Bram Stoker, Lewis Carroll, uh, J.M. Barry, uh, the uh, Beatrix Potter, A.A. Milne for like the young adult stuff. Kenneth Graham wrote The Wind of the Willows. Um, but like significantly, like C.S. Lewis, he drew on a lot of the same stuff that Tolkien drew on. Um, but obviously he wasn't necessarily inspired um, by Tolkien. Although I think a case can be made that C.S. Lewis made of um, subconsciously plagiarized a little bit of Tolkien stuff. Like I, for instance, I think there's a Numenor mentioned in um, one of uh, C.S. Lewis's science fiction books. Do you, do you have you read a lot of Lewis's science fiction books? The the Planet trilogies, I think. It's um, I read the. I would say that it's what. I think it's called the Planet. The Perlandra. Yeah, yeah, right. The where they he goes where where Tolkien goes to Mars essentially. <laughs> so yeah, 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 Perlandra, yeah, yeah. Perlandra I, that hideous strength. Yeah, the space. I think it's called the space trilogy. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, um, yeah. The the main character, I think his name is Ransom, is actually based. Lewis based it on Tolkien, and um, based that character on Tolkien. And the um, there is a mention in one of his books of of Numenor. And at this point, the Lord of the Rings had not yet been published, and of course, Numenor doesn't come up in the Hobbit. 
but because Tolkien and Lewis were friends and they were sharing these ideas with each other, Lewis obviously heard the word from from Tolkien and and uh, included it as sort of an Easter egg for his friend. I don't, I don't know how amused Tolkien was by that, frankly. <laughs> All right. So, but, and again, there's another school of genre development that's happening um, specifically in the United States that really doesn't owe anything to Tolkien. And, um, you know, we're, we're, and I think that school uh, really has got to start with Edgar Allan Poe um, and um, L. Frank, or yeah, L. Frank Baum, right? The guy who wrote The Wizard of Oz. Now look at, you know, The Wizard of Oz was, published i think in 1900 or 1901 um and that that's an early example of what fantasy was like in the in the united states with the hobbits or excuse me not the hobbits the munchkins the munchkins um the munchkins and the the flying monkeys and the witches of the the east and the west and the north and the south um the 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 wizard of the emerald city um but if you if you look at a movie, for instance, like The Wizard of Oz, which was made in 1939, and then you look at a movie like The Fellowship of the Ring, which came out in 2001, these are two very different films. <laughs> um, you can see where they might be drawing on the same um, taproot texts, but they are very different from how they developed and the, the end result of what we get, right? Indeed. Yeah. Okay. So, um, some, and the way fantasy develops in America kind of takes like a horror, um, route. Um, because as, as I said, we, we have, uh, Ed, Edgar Allan Poe, who we could also really credit for, um, establishing the, um, mystery detective novel as well, um, with his, um, Auguste Dupont stories. Um, but, uh, you know, we get folks like H.P. Lovecraft. Are, which are who are directly descended from um, a Poe. Um, but the thing about Lovecraft is that he had really two big influences. Um, Edgar Allan Poe is one, but the other one is uh, Lord Dunsany. And that's kind of cool because that's actually a fairly recognized influence of Tolkien as well. Um, do, do you know who T- Dunsany is, Chris? Uh, King of Elfland's daughter. Yeah, right on. Uh, that's, that's exactly that's right. That's the title I know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Dunsany was a, an Irish writer um, who was writing this these really fascinating fantasies in the latter part of the nineteenth and early part of the twentieth century um, that uh, Tolkien uh, would read, and um, Robert E. Howard would read them. H.P. Lovecraft would read them, um, and uh, a lot of this like. A lot of his work really drew on the innate uh, um, Celticism of uh, his Irish upbringing, Celticness of his Irish upbringing. Um, And that kind of, you can sort of see that um, come out in the Silmarillion. A lot of folks have pointed out some of the uh, the influence there. Um, But you also get folks that are in Lovecraft's circle, like um, Robert E. Howard, who started writing his uh, Conan stories in the 1930s. uh, And we get a very different kind of fantasy hero. Um, Chris, have you uh, read a lot of Conan? Um, I have not. I have not, but I am pretty familiar with the genre outside of the movies. So I've read, you know, 
things that are homage to it as well as Conan stories. Yeah. And, you know, Conan is almost its own um, factory where there's a lot of ripoffs of like Conan that happened a little bit later. And we can, we'll, we'll talk about that, but we get, we get other writers um, that, that are coming out of that. We get folks like um, Al Sprague DeCamp, uh, Jack Vance, uh, Paul Anderson, Robert Block. Um, but um, significantly we get uh, Fritz Lieber uh, and Fritz Lieber is really writing more in the vein of like the Robert E. Howard type of fantasy hero with his Fafford and Grey Mouser uh, stories, the first of which was um, published in 1939. Um, and until I started doing some research on, on this stuff, I didn't realize that the Fafford and Grey Mouser stories started that early. Did you know that? Uh, I did not. I I have not had the pleasure of reading any of those stories, but I have been familiar with the names and the general um, yeah. uh, story behind them since the uh, <laughs> since the old D and D days from the old deities and demigods book. Yeah, yeah, and you know, Fritz Leiber really had a, a huge influence on the development of Dungeons and Dragons, um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, the, um, the the way fantasy is developing in the United States really has a, owes a lot to the publication of like pulp magazines, these anthology stories like um, series, these anthology magazines like Amazing Amazing Stories, Weird Tales, Unknown, uh, which is where the um, uh, first Fafford and Green Master story was published. Uh, astounding science fiction. All of these really cool. You can go to a newsstand um, in 1939 and you know pick up a copy of Weird Tales and catch you know the, uh, the uh, a reprint of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft or Robert E. Howard because unfortunately both of them were dead at that point. Um, but that that's sort of where. Uh, fantasy was the Hobbit really hadn't made too much of a splash in publishing in the United States at that point. Um, but uh, that's uh, as you can see, there was a pretty solid tradition of fantasy fiction in the U.S. prior to uh, prior to Tolkien and the explosion of popularity that he enjoyed in the 1960s with that paperback public publishing. Um, shortly after the pulps kind of uh, fell away. There's a lot of really significant publishing done by small press, things like Gnome Press, um, Arkham House, uh, which published a lot of like the Lovecraft Circle writers. Um, some of, um, I believe, some of Isaac Asimov's earliest works was published by were published by Gnome Press as well. Um, but so we can kind of see here in our our framework we've got we've started with tolkien we've gone back to look at what inspired tolkien and what what influenced um the type of material that he was writing and then we took a look back at a parallel development of the fantasy genre in the united states um as well but now let's take a look at the effect that tolkien had on the genre um and uh, shortly after the Lord of the Rings was published, um, you start seeing some really great work coming out of the UK by folks like uh, Alan Gardner, um, who wrote, have you read The Weird Stone of Brisingamen by any chance? I have not. I have yeah. not. Um, I, I didn't read it until fairly recently in the last 10, 15 years. Um, but it's it's um, uh, written for, it's a, ostensibly written for children like a young adult or middle grade uh but it's it's one of those books like the hobbit where an adult can read it and you can get some 
um, really deeper uh, meaning and information from it. I really love how uh, Alan Gardner draws upon the myth of the king under the hill in the Weird Stone. On he wrote um, two other books. It was a it was a trilogy, but you could pretty much read the Weird Stone on its own and get a really great experience there. Um, you got folks like Suzanne Cooper with uh, the Dark is Rising. You get uh, Joan Aiken who wrote the Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Um, Roald Dahl. Uh, I mean, everybody knows Roald Dahl mainly from the, like the Willy Wonka, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But this is, you know, th- these are works that really owe a lot to the publication of The Hobbit uh, in as much as opening up fantasy to a young adult, um, young adult market. Um, but the most, in the UK at least, the most significant post-Tolkien or Tolkien-influenced writer has got to be Michael Moorcock. Would you agree? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, do you, have you read much of Moorcock specifically his Elric or eternal champion books? Uh, yeah, I have, uh, I've read all as many Elric books as I could get my hands on. And I've been reading them (laughs) since the eighties for me, he was maybe like second to Tolkien uh, as far as favorites. And it's odd because while one was influenced by the other, um, Moorcock has a much more, uh, he has a very different point of view as far as what his hero should be and what they should be striving for and the decisions that they make and how they, they take their hero journey. So, Um, that was one of the reasons why I really kind of enjoyed Moorcock because it wasn't Tolkien, but you could tell it was in the same vein. Yes. Um, so I, you hit it right on the head there. Moorcock is not only is he a very different writer, um, but I think he, he writes in reaction to Tolkien. Um, he, um, I, I don't know that one can say Moorcock enjoys Tolkien. I think he probably respects it and he's clearly, there's some influence there. Um, but there's actually a little bit of a, a derision or condes- uh, condescension in the way Moorcock talks about the Lord of the Rings. Um, he has a pretty famous essay called um, Epic Pooh, um, Pooh as in Winnie the Pooh, where he's, he compares um, the Lord of the Rings to um the the consolatory fiction of of a a milne where you know everything is going to be okay the rightful order is going to be restored um there's really no kind of jeopardy or ultimately there's um the the rightness of the universe is going to is going to uh is the most important thing in the fiction um whereas um morcock really comes from a completely different standpoint where chaos and you know that battle against chaos and entropy and destruction really represents for him that centralized struggle and um i mean and that i think that really comes out in the story of of elric and uh, and obviously we're gonna we're gonna get to morcock we're gonna get to elric in a in a future episode we'll talk about this a little more in depth in depth but um yeah. Uh, so, but it's interesting where you get the popularity of Tolkien, and then you get the the reaction, the feet, the uh, the blowback a little bit from somebody like Moorcock. Um, and, and and I will say that uh, 
the people who read Tolkien actually enjoy it for a lot of the reasons that Morcock doesn't. Um, that that um, the consolatory, that recovery that is experienced when reading the a book like The Lord of the Rings is what a lot of folks go to fiction for. Um, it and it and it really it's a, I think it's a reflection of um, Tolkien's religion uh, that kind of comes through sometime as well. Uh, and that's obviously something that Moorcock rejects, uh, but we'll, we'll get to Moorcock down the line. <clears throat> so, um, so, and, and this, remember we're, we're at a period of history right now in America, uh, that's sort of, uh, experiencing this explosion of writers, right. Where you get after, after Tolkien, you get folks like, um, uh, Madeline Lengel, Maurice Sendak, uh, Lloyd Alexander, who wrote the Chronicles of Pride and the, um, John Belair's, uh, wrote a very, very famous, uh, single fantasy book. Um, but then you get some really important writers, um, post Tolkien writers in America, folks like, and what's interesting about this, t- Chris, I'm going to list off some of these writers. You tell me what you think they all have in common. You ready? Andrew Norton, Marianne Zimmer Bradley, Anne McCaffrey, Ursula K. Le Guin. Patricia McKillop and CJ Cherry. They're all women writers. <laughs> okay. Right. You, you win the no prize for this episode. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I find that fascinating is that some of the most significant writers post Tolkien in America really um, uh, are, are women who have taken what Tolkien started the match that he wrote and they're sort of carrying that flame and starting bonfires of their own. Obviously, uh, Andre Norton, one of the most pr- prolific writers, and she and her career actually goes back prior to the publication of Lord of the Rings, but really um, explodes after um, with uh, her paperback publications. Marianne Zimmer Bradley um, got her start writing what amounts to what actually is Tolkien fan fiction. Her first public work was um, a story about Arwen. Uh, uh, that couldn't obviously that could not be published today the way the laws are. Um, Anne McCaffrey, a science fiction writer that most folks would assume is uh, a fantasy writer. Um, you get folks, <clears throat> you get women like Ursula K. Le Guin, who not only, I think Ursula K. Le Guin takes a synthesis of the Lord of the Rings and turns it into something original, uh, novel, and absolutely brilliant. And we'll get to her somewhere down the line as well. One of the great, um, underappreciated, uh, writers, of this this era starting in like the late 60s early 70s is going to be Patricia McK- Patricia McKillop um and she unfortunately she passed away just a couple of months ago um but uh someone who worked in the genre from the late 60s early 70s right up to uh just a couple of years ago was publishing books um but a lot of, a lot of this stuff really is a product of the work of just a couple of guys and from a publishing standpoint, and we're talking about folks like uh, Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter. Um, now, th- these guys were the ones who kept uh, Conan, the short stories of uh, Robert E. Howard, alive when the author had died, the pulps had gone under. Uh, and they had essentially, they created these small press publishing houses to put out these versions of these stories. But when um, Ace the paperback publisher Ace Books um, started publishing a um, 
um, explosion of fantasy and, and paperback, they 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 brought um, they brought Conan back out. Um, and actually, they they were committed to publishing the story of uh, Conan the Barbarian. They started doing that with a publisher named Lancer. <clears throat> uh, so if you have uh, this chronological retelling of Conan's story, you got to start with the Lancer books. And then they were later, when Lancer went under, they were picked up by Ace Books. Um, and if you remember, we talked about Donald Walheim a little while back. He was the, he's the publisher of, of, uh, of Ace Books. And he, he's the one who um, would later uh, leave Ace and he would found uh, the publishing house called Daw, D-A-W, um, and Daw is pretty famous as being one of the first publishers only of science fiction and fantasy. And that's a publishing house that lasted up until about a week and a half ago, actually, <laughs> as an independent publishing house. They were recently bought out about literally about a week and a half ago from the time that's writing on our recording uh, in August. Um, and is even Wolheim's daughter was running that publishing house. Um, but um yeah, so uh, some pretty significant work published by Al Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter. Uh, you'll remember those Conan books with the the Frank Frazetta covers, with uh, you know Conan and the coils oh, sure. of a giant snake. Yeah, yeah. My my favorite had to be the 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 one where he's fighting the the um, the gorilla in the red cape. Thack, I think it was his name from Rogues in the House, the uh, Conan story. <laughs> yeah, um, but. Uh, <laughs> So, and this is the era of these big conventions. Now we're talking about um, the you know science fiction conventions, Worldcon, uh, where um, you know we think about conventions now, like the San Diego Comic Convention um, or Dragon Con that happens in Atlanta. Um, they all get their start in this era, the late '60s and early '70s, uh, where folks would get together. Um, they would have guests of honor. Um, folks like, um, you know, we talked about Isaac Asimov, um, Paul Anderson, uh, Larry Niven, uh, you know, big writers um, who would, uh, they would give uh, talks. Um, there would be vendors, books would be sold, um, but people would get together for dinner uh, or just get together and chat. And this is where you get like this, this group of, of, of writers and editors like Lynn Carter, uh, L. Sprague de Camp, but this is where Fritz Leiber kind of comes back into the picture. Uh, Michael Moorcock, Jack Vance, these folks um, really getting uh, noticed with uh, a larger audience, um, and their 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 books are later published in some really great anthologies like um, Swords Against Darkness, Flashing Swords, um, and World's Greatest or World's Best Fantasy or this year's best fantasy um, and all of these books being published by Ace and later Daw. Right. Um, but when um, we're, right, right around this time as well, you're getting um, one of these editors and writers, his name was Lynn Carter. We talked about him in terms of his publishing of the Conan stories, but um, he was hired by the Ballantines uh, to actually, I take that back. I think the Ballantines uh, were bought out by a larger publishing group. And Lynn Carter was was um, brought in to start publishing some um, uh, great stuff in uh, paperback. And when he did that, 
you know, he's doing, he's publishing these cheap paperbacks to capitalize on the growing popularity of Tolkien. Remember Tolkien in paperback selling great in colleges, great on the newsstands and drugstores, that kind of thing. So Lynn Carter goes back and he says, okay, well, let's start publishing the, the, the original influences of Tolkien. So he goes back and he starts publishing things like, I think it was called the Ballantine adult fantasy series. Do you remember seeing these in the bookstores, Chris, with uh, like the crazy paperback covers, real trippy, Acid drenched 1960s Beatles infused fantasy covers. I do, yeah, that was some crazy stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I think there was like 60 volumes of the adult fantasy series. Um, and he would go back, he would publish stuff like Lord Dunsany. Um, um, he would publish, uh, Evangeline Walton's books. Um, what's actually kind of cool about Evangeline Walton is that she was a writer who published a book about Celtic mythology in the, I think it was either the, I think it was the early thirties, but when Lynn Carter started publishing his Ballantine adult fantasy series, um, he reprinted that one, which encouraged her to write sequels. So she would later write uh, a second book and then a third book and then later a fourth book and and uh, you know to follow up what she wrote um and i think the first one was called the island of the mighty um and uh she would later go on to write um uh, you know a couple other ones for the adult fantasy series so he he was pretty good lynn carter was a bit of a um uh, an entrepreneur or impresario i should say when it came to discovering fantasy writers, because one of the one of the last books that he published in the adult fantasy series was Catherine Kurtz's first Dereny book, Dereny Rising. Um, you know the one I'm talking about. I do. Yep. Um, so, did you read the Catherine Kurtz Dereny books, the the Camber books, or um, any uh, any of her stuff? I did, yes. I, I've also read the Mabino, uh, Mabinogian by Walton. It's been a million years since I read it, but I, I've read that with those as well. So, Yeah, all of that is due to Lynn Carter uh, finding these, these books, bringing these books back in print and finding these new writers and encouraging ones to continue writing. So Lynn Carter did a fantastic service to the, to the development of the, the genre in the United States, that's for sure. The so we talked about Donald Walheim later leaving Ace Books and forming their um his new imprint, um Daw Books. Um and one of the first books that Daw published was one of the um one of Andre Norton's Witchworld books. Um and this is a this is significant because this is another one of those long running series that um um like in the in the vein of Marion Zimmer Bradley's uh what is it, Dark Over novels that really opened up uh, publishing fantasy and science fiction publishing um, to uh, folks who were just kind of starting out. Um, they would, they would actually invite fans of the series to uh, contribute short stories to the anthologies that they would later, that they would publish. So uh, folks like um, Mercedes Lackey got her start like that. Uh, CJ Cherry, I believe, also got her start like that as well. Um, so I think that, um, and w one other thing I want to say about Lynn Carter is that in his, um, uh, I think it was his year's best fantasy annual publications. Uh, one of the things he did is he did like a review of the overall publications. Uh, in 1977, he reviewed Terry Brooks's sort of Shannara. 
And I'm going to I'm going to quote you what he wrote about Terry Brooks. And I want to just give you a disclaimer that this is Lynn Carter's opinion of the Sword of Shannara. And he says, and I quote, the single most cold blooded, complete ripoff of another book that I have ever read. Brooks wasn't trying to imitate Tolkien's prose. He just stole the storyline and a complete cast of characters and did it with such clumsiness, clumsiness and so heavy handedly that he virtually rubs your nose in it. End quote. So <laughs> I, I think that's, um, that's a little overly harsh for what uh, the sort of Shannara is. Um, but it's a great segue into talking about what we're going to, we're going to get to in just a moment, the, the new Tolkien's that kind of started in 1977. The only other thing I want to say about this era of fantasy publishing uh, and the development of the genre is that something very significant happens in 1974 in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And Chris, I think I know, I think you know what I'm talking about. Gary Gygax. <laughs> uh, TSR. Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. Uh, That's that's exactly right. Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson create Dungeons and Dragons and publish it in 1974. Yeah, that's a pretty significant uh, portion of any good collection. Yep. Um, So the the Del Rey's were a husband and wife team of editors. And um, Lester was actually a writer as well. Um, but they, they were hired when the Ballantines sold their, um, their publishing house to, I think it was random house maybe. Um, but anyway, sold something else, uh, and, and Ballantine books, um, under, uh, a specific imprint called Del Rey, um, was the Judy Lynn and Lester as editors recruiting and publishing, um, a, a new generation of writers. And it's in this time that they discovered uh, two pretty significant writers, um, both of whom would publish their debuts in 1977. Um, One of them is obviously Terry Brooks. The other is Stephen R. Donaldson. Um, And um, if we're going to complete our triumvirate of, quote, new Tolkien's, we would have to include five years later, the publication of Pawn of Prophecy by David Eddings. Now, these are three writers, Terry Brooks, Stephen Donaldson, and David Eddings, uh, who were published by Del Rey, who were edited by Lester Del Rey, um, who directly owe um, a whole lot to um, Tolkien and the and the Lord of the Rings. Um, Chris, what was your first experience of Terry Brooks and the Shannara books? I would, I would say Eddings. Eddings was... Again, it was it was a familiar thing because by that time, by the time eighty two had rolled around, I was twelve, and you would say, "Oh, you're just a kid," and that's true, I was, but I devoured everything. I wasn't lying, man. I I stripped that library bare and read everything they had, so I had an idea of what the genre could do and what was coming out, and and it was it was familiar territory. It was I've always seen sure. Eddings as kind of like a travelogue through his his creation and he it was funny that you should mention that he started you thought he started with a map because it really sounds like that's what it was that he was trying to do was to fit a story to a map and i I don't mean to belittle the the process that he went through it was a really good story and it was an interesting travelogue and he put in you know different cultures and reasonings behind the way these things were and the stories he told were were sufficiently um 
gripping and interesting and had good characters in them so that you could read along with them. But it wasn't anything that was as much of an epic as he tried to make it to be. It was never as epic as Tolkien, as far as I was concerned. Um, it was familiar and it was good and I enjoyed it, but um, it wasn't it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Now, your point to, to Donaldson with the Thomas Covenant books, I agree with that. I don't necessarily particularly care much for uh, the writing and which the direction that he went and how he writes, but I know you've always big, been a big champion of his. Um, but you're absolutely correct in saying that it's definitely a, the most divergent from Tolkien. And I appreciate him for that because Terry Brooks has proved as... Lynn Carter mentioned earlier that that's what he was about was, you know, he was, he was rewriting Tolkien, which at the time was something, I mean, Dennis McKiernan did it too. Iron Tower trilogy. That's, that's Lord of the Rings again. So, um, it was something that sold. I don't blame the publishers for doing it. I don't blame the authors for doing it. Everybody needs to make a paycheck, but, um, in answer, the long answer to your question is, is I pick Eddings. Excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I, and I think you hit, hit it, hit it on the head when you said it was like comfortable and familiar and felt like coming home because one of the things that Eddings does really well is that he creates this cast of characters that he really brings to life. Um, and if you liked him in the Belgariad, you'll meet him again in the Elenium. Because <laughs> no, never mind. I mean, I'm being unfair to Eddings. I think. Uh, I right. don't. I don't. You're. I think you're spot on, dude. But yeah. it doesn't. But because it's like comfort food. It's like when you're when you're out on a cold day and your boots have been melted through with that snow two hours ago, and your feet are freezing, and you want to come inside, and mom has made you grilled cheese and tomato soup, and you're like, oh. This is awesome. I know exactly what I'm going to get. I'm going to get all warm and filled up and everything's going to be good. And that, and that's fine if that's as far as you want to broaden your horizons. So I don't think you're wrong in your, your criticism that it's the same thing over and over. But it doesn't make it bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're done with Lord of the Rings and you want to read something a lot like that, um, you know, pick up the Sword of Shannara or... Uh, pick up the Iron Tower trilogy, like you said, Dennis McKiernan. Um, and I will say that I I love the Iron Tower trilogy. <laughs> I love Dennis McKiernan. Oh, um, David! No, now David. Stop. Hold on, I'm, I I want to explain something here. Um, and he gets a lot of heat unfairly, I think, about that being cleaving so close to the Lord of the Rings. And I'll tell you why this happens. Um, when he wrote the iron tower trilogy, he, uh, he had actually written what he wanted to write was a sequel to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, he had been in a terrible, um, I think it was a, a biking, uh, uh, off-road biking accident. And he was in the hospital and he was laid up, um, broken bones. It was, um, he, he was kind of, he had just, I, this is the, I guess in the mid seventies. And, um, he thought to himself while I'm recuperating, I'm going to write a sequel to the Lord of the Rings. And he did, he wrote a sequel to the Lord of the Rings. Um, and unfortunately the Tolkien estate would not permit 
anyone else to write a sequel to the Lord of the Rings. Um, but he farmed it out to publishers or he got a, I guess he found a publisher who thought this work was excellent. And he said, okay, I would like to publish this. Obviously we cannot publish it as a sequel to the Lord of the Rings. We'll have to, we'll have to publish it as something different. So you have to change up the, the names and the places. Um, and we'll publish it like that. So he said to himself, okay, I would love to do that. Except I wrote this as a sequel to something everybody knows what came before. I can't just publish this as an orphan without everyone knowing what came before. So he went back and he rewrote what um, the Iron Tower trilogy second so that people would have context for that, quote, sequel to The Lord of the Rings that he wrote, which he would later publish as the Silver Call duology. So um, what's but what I would I will give Dennis McKiernan all the credit in the world because yes, you do have um like a hobbit type folk. You have elves and men and maybe Rohirrim and um the Battle of Helm's Deep, and you've got the the battle uh like a final battle at Mordor. Um but you have characters that are distinct from the characters in the Lord of the Rings. Um, you have a type of wonder, an atmosphere of adventure and fantasy that he captures absolutely perfectly. And after he publishes the Iron Tower trilogy and the Silver Call duology, um, he goes off and he really expands the series, which is um, it takes place in a, in a land called Mythgar. Uh, he, he really expands the myths and legends and stories of Mythgar to include so much original material that it makes comparisons to Tolkien um, kind of superficial and odious at this point. I will say that it has been many years since I read the Iron Tower trilogy, and I was disappointed when I read it, um, even at the young age that I read it, because I, I saw it for what it was, and I did not like that someone was taking the master and doing that to him. However, because that is the sole uh, point of knowledge that I have, I can certainly appreciate that you have um, gone beyond that and seen something different about him. And if I ever decide that that's the direction I want to go, I will take your recommendation in mind as I do that. But I don't know, man. I don't know if I could read the Iron Tower trilogy again. Oh, oh, I'm going to make it my point in life to get you to read the Iron Tower trilogy again. <laughs> And oh, you're I, already going to make me redo Thomas Covenant, and now you want me to do the damn Iron Trilogy. Come on, David. And, and you're going to thank me for it afterwards. <laughs> I I guarantee it. Oh, sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Well, all right. So I feel like we gotta we gotta start wrapping this up. So, um, uh, and, and basically with these new Tolkien's being published, that's that's sort of like the the real the birth of the modern fantasy publishing um, uh, 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 situation. I, I think that once, once you get all that stuff, then you get folks like Raymond Feist. Um, we talked about Dennis McKiernan. You get the brilliant Guy Gavriel Kay. You get folks like Robin McKinley, Barbara Hambly, Jennifer Roberson, all these folks that are coming out with epic fantasy stuff that's um, in the vein of Tolkien. Um, but really introducing 
with every one of them, something new, something original, something fascinating, something fun. Um, and, and yes, Chris, I did include Raymond Feist for you because I know you love Raymond Feist. Yes, I, I, I do. I really, really do. So um, I, I'm not going to hold this over your head or do a quid pro quo with it. But if I'm going to read Raymond Feist for the show, then you're going to read Dennis McKiernan. <laughs> I think that's only fair. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. We're going to do Covenant and we're going to do Tad Williams, too. So that's three against one. What are you going to do for <sighs> me? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. You're, you're going to read Zelazny. That's what you're going to do. You're going to read Nine Princesses, Am- Nine Princes in Amber and all the four books after that. Uh, that's a slog. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well they're uh, thin, dude. They're thin. They're only like they're like two hundred pages long, two fifty, something like that. You can do that while you're, you know, don't bring your phone in while you're having a seat. So, in a book, <laughs> I um, I gotta, I gotta admit, uh, I I did read Nine Princes and Amber, the first one, ages ago, long time ago, um. And I, I was so turned off by it because every, I think Corwin, the main character, reminded me of, you remember that old Saturday Night Live sketch with Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd, the couple of wild and crazy guys? I, they, uh, <laughs> Corwin reminds me of like S- Steve Martin's character in that sketch. I, I know that's probably not fair. I'm probably misremembering. But anyway. Um. I would yes, I, I would I would say that it is a mischaracterization. However, um, you know we feel how we feel about things, and uh, it's really hard to get first impressions out of your head. So, um, yeah, it, it's good to have been able to grow older. I'm I'm actually looking forward to rereading some stuff. Uh, Tad Williams, I'm going to try to give him a, a second chance. We'll do Two Green Angel Tower, and you know we'll do that whole series and whatnot at some point. I know you love that stuff, so love um, Tad Williams. But, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm really gonna have to rake you over the coals for Donaldson, though, dude. So, <laughs> so that's all right. Um, we'll get. I, I'll go easy on you on Tad Williams. We'll start with Tail Chaser's song, um, and we'll, we'll we'll have to work up to Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, um, which is his uh, epic, his first epic fantasy trilogy. He's actually writing a sequel to that right now, and it's just as brilliant as the original. Um, but it's a lot. I mean, his his books are door stoppers. So we we will work up to those. Um, but um, so carrying on, we were talking about like this explosion of the genre after the new Tolkien's. Um, and you know, you get this is where you get some really great um, shared world stuff as well. A couple, I, and I don't know what it is about a shared a fantasy shared world uh, series that I just love. I love like the Thieves World stuff. I love Thieves World. Um, did you read any of the Thieves World? The Robert Asprin, Lynn Abbey, Janet Morris? Uh, yeah, I did. I read the first, uh, I want to say it was three or four at the very least. So I always enjoyed them. I thought that was such a different way to do fantasy. And it always worked out. It was low fantasy, most of it. And it 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 worked really well. Yeah. Uh, ur- urban fantasy in as much as it took place in like one setting in a city uh, called um, Sanctuary. And it was all of these really great fantasy writers from the previous couple of decades um, uh, coming up with their own characters, intermingling storylines and 
Um, it was ultimately, I think it went for 12 anthologies, uh, and it had a, like a revival in, a the most a couple years ago. Um, but, uh, that, that's something that we could devote a whole other podcast to. So we'll get to that. Um, but one of the a significant shared world that comes out during this time, um, that has, uh, it's another one of these big ripples, right? Um, is that the art, the role-playing game literature. So when we, we talk about the, the Dragonlance books or the Forgotten Realms books, they all started proliferating right around this time. I think Dragonlance has almost 200 books that were published. Uh, Forgotten Realms, uh, there's a couple hundred of the Forgotten Realms books that were published around this time as well. Um, and I know uh, we we uh, personally have uh, Dragonlance is one of our favorites. Uh, as a matter of fact, as we record this, Chris was making fun of me because he could see me on video and I'm wearing my my Dragonlance T-shirt. So we know we come by our fandom pretty honestly with that one. Yes, sir. <clears throat> that blew my mind. I love Dragonlance so much. It was it, it, he's that's actually the reason why I love Feist, too, because it's obviously a D&D setting. I mean, I couldn't see the people sitting around the table playing that out as far as how they fleshed it out in to make it a, a story, especially a trilogy. But the the ideas behind it, the people I'm sure that played the characters, you could see their own personalities in that. I mean, it wasn't all just the writer taking, um, you know, a storyline and making characters out of it. I, I, you could actually, for me, you could see people trying to put an effort into what it was that they were doing in order to make um, the story run that the DM was telling. So th- those were the two big takeaways that I took from Dragonlance and Feist. So yeah. that was uh, just amazing. Yeah. And I, and um, it is an urban myth that these books were derived from role-playing settings Um uh, or sessions, role-playing sessions, where, whereas I know a lot of people talk about how Dragonlance was born from a bunch of people getting sitting around a table and role-playing out that uh, that story. And that's uh, that's sort of been um, debunked by the writers. Um, they, they, they come out with these annotated editions and they, they explain some of that stuff in there. And, but they, they cover that in a lot of interviews that uh, you'll, you'll see um, over the course of the last couple of years. But specifically Dragonlance, by the way, that's still going strong. Um, as a matter of fact, this month, August of 2022, uh, saw the release of the first new Dragonlance books in the last like 10 years, 12 years or so. Um, and it's good. Uh, Weiss and Hickman returned to their first series. Um, this is published under the banner uh, uh, Classic Dragonlance because um, the setting is going to be sort of rebooted by Wizards of the Coast for a setting in D- Dungeons and Dragons on later on in the year. But this is going, kind of going back to their original flavor. Um, and I don't know if that's on your radar, Chris, but um, it's good. It's um, I've got some thoughts on it and I uh, will maybe share that uh, later in another future episode. Um, but absolutely. If you're a Dragonlance fan, go pick up the, the, the recent uh, Dragonlance Destinies Volume 1, Dragons of Deceit by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Um, but uh, kind of, you know, wrapping it up, this is around the time when, you know, fantasy as a genre is really maturing. Uh, it really starts um, exploding with subgenres. Uh, what I mean by that, we start seeing some like grittier fantasy from folks like uh, Glenn Cook with his Black Company 
uh, series of books. Glenn Cook was a veteran, of uh, Vietnam War veteran. And you could really see that coming through in his writing. You get the Shadow of the Torturer books by Gene Wolfe, the Legend books by David Gamel. Um, you get some really great sword and sorcery by folks like Charles Saunders. Um, then you start seeing, uh, like I said, these additional uh, genres. The urban fantasy genre starts with um, some great writers like Robert Holdstock, Emma Bull, Tanya Huff. Even This is really when Neil Gaiman starts uh, writing some great stuff. Uh, but one of the, I think, most fascinating offshoots of the fantasy genre to come around this time was the, the light slash comedic fantasy um, published by folks most brilliantly by Terry Pratchett, of course, Terry Pratchett still in print today was publishing books right up until his untimely death just a couple of years ago. Uh, but you get um, uh, folks like Piers Anthony and his Xanth books. Um, Robert Asprin was doing the myth Inc books. You remember those with uh Skeev, the magician? I do. Yeah. Those were excellent too. Yeah. Um, uh, and there was a lot of jokey books that came out around this time by writers like Craig Shaw Gardner and Edith Reisner. Uh, I'll never forget the Edith Reisner books because they had these, um, I think they were Larry Elmore uh, illustrations on the cover. And then the books were called Chicks and Chainmail. Um, and they were written by uh, fantasy authors who were women. Um, but the the covers were really designed to attract a, a male audience as well. Uh, so you should, uh, if if you've not seen those covers, maybe do a Google, Google image search because it's really some of Larry Elmore's best work. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's not fair. I, it, when you talk about Larry Elmore's best work, he was a cover artist, fantasy cover artist. You really got to, you got to talk about the original Dragonlance, um, Dragonlance covers, the first six books. But, um, Oh, yeah. So, and yeah, uh, and Dungeons and Dragons had a lot of artists who started in, in house as illustrators for the game that really became household names and fantasy book cover illustrations. Larry Elmore just being the, the most prominent, of course, Keith Parkinson was another one. Brahm would later do that as well. Um, um, and then the full maturation of fantasy as a genre really comes with like the, the era of like these big doorstopper books. We were talking about Tad Williams um, and without Tad Williams, you don't get people um, like George R. R. Martin a little bit later. Um, but you also have Melanie Ron who wrote a fantastic series, couple, a couple of series, um, the, her Dragon Prince series, which I know we're going to get to. Um, in our episodes as well. You get Robert Jordan, um, who was writing some really great Conan pastiches uh, when he decided he was going to uh, turn his talents to an original uh, series that would become the Wheel of Time books that extended up to, I think, 14 volumes, um, 11 of which were written by uh, Robert Jordan himself. And then he left an outline for an unfinished 12 volumes, which another writer... Uh, named Brandon Sanderson would would later publish um, in three volumes. Um, you get uh, writers like Terry Goodkind with his Sword of Truth series, uh, Robin Hobb with his, with her uh, Assassins. I, I actually I think the name of the series is called The Realm of the Elderlings. 
Um, and she's, I think there's like 17 books in that series that that series is concluded, uh, and they're in series of trilogies. So it's not like you have to read 17 straight books in a row. You could just read the first trilogy and be really good and done with it. Um, and, um, like all, all great, all worthwhile stuff, except for Terry Goodkind, I would say, no, I'm not, I, I cannot in good conscience recommend Terry Goodkind. I, tr- I tried a couple of his books, um, and, um. There's there's some problems with that, but we could discuss that in another another episode. Um, and then you get like the 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 New York Times bestsellers of today. You get J.K. Rowling, you get George R.R. R. Martin, you get Brandon Sanderson. These are all writers who you will see front and center at any Barnes and Noble or Books a Million that you walk into. Uh, and it really represents how you know fantasy came from the back of the store, literally. You and I both worked in bookstores when we were growing up, um, but you'd have to go to the far back corner of the store to find science fiction fantasy books. And now you've got George R.R. R. Martin and J.K. Rowling front and center. The minute you walk in, first impulse buy to put in your cart, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So and and so at, at this point, you know, fantasy has really come to its its. Uh, I don't want to say its final form, but we can say that if Tolkien was the spine around which fantasy as a body of work is constructed. Uh, now we've got these writers who are the hands and the eyes and the feet and the muscles um, of, of the rest of it. And I think that, uh, you know, as, as we go through this podcast, um, th- through this show, we are going to really take a, a closer look at a lot of these works that we've already referenced. We'll take a look at, uh, at these writers um, and their their various overall bodies of work, their oeuvre, um, and we'll hopefully be able to share some information uh, that our, our listeners will enjoy, help them to a greater appreciation and understanding of the stuff that they're, that they're reading. And that they um, can come back to like we have uh, time and time again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I look forward to going through all these discussions with you. I know uh, we, we've hinted at and even come straight out and said some of the things we we like and we don't like. And uh, we're not a monolith but as much as we've had influence on one another throughout the years. Um, sure. Uh, Dave, as you might be able to tell, is uh, is certainly the more scholarly of the two of us. But um, I, I I have been, I think, the more adventuresome at times. Um, whether Dave has agreed with what I like or not, uh, <laughs> it has been a good ride. I've enjoyed it. So yeah, yeah. All right. Any any last thoughts um, as to the topic of our uh, show today, the development of the genre? Uh, yeah, I would say that for all of the impact that Tolkien had and all of the signs that point back to him, it's like my my ex-wife used to tell me, when you point your finger at somebody, you've got three more pointing back at you. And all I mean by that is, is that Tolkien is the forward pointing arrow. It's who everybody is trying to aspire to be on some level for whatever they're going to take from him and use for themselves. But you can also see if you look and you don't have to look very hard uh, where the influences came from uh, for Tolkien, for his stories, for where we got to where we are. So history and we're both history buffs uh, continues to roll forward and 
while we're going to take a small chunk of time and focus on that um, as being important, it's it's so much more just the sum of all its parts. I mean, it's just an amazing. I've been doing this forty five years reading these books, and it's just been a joyful experience in most cases. So, well said, N- nicely said. All right, Chris. So uh, we're we're going to wrap it up, but before we do that, we got um, I, we've got a segment that I'm. Uh, I'm going to call David's second shelf, and that is going to be a book recommendation uh, that I have for our listeners uh, or for you um, that might not necessarily be from the fantasy canon. It might not even be from the genre itself, um, but uh, so it doesn't necessarily fit the, 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 the purview of the podcast or the show. Um, so, um, but I, I think I already mentioned it. Dragons of Deceit was published by, um, Weiss and Hickman, the Dragonlance book, uh, just a couple weeks ago as of this recording. Um, I've already read it, a fantastic book. Folks who are listening to this, who are fans of Dragonlance should definitely go out and buy it. Um, Weiss and Hickman have not missed a beat. Um, I, I do have, uh, some, uh, thoughts that I, I, I do want to eventually share about the the book. We'll do that on, maybe when we cover Dragonlance uh, somewhere down the line. But unreserved recommendation for that book. Do go read it. Um, so that was David's second shelf. We ought to come up with like a little jingle or something for that segment. Um, but uh, we do have another segment that we're going to call <laughs> Questions 3. Uh, and that's uh, those of you who are fans of Monty Python might recommend recognize the these questions three uh that um with apologies to tim the enchanter but chris i'm gonna start and i'm gonna say if you could so these are these are questions that we're gonna ask each other and our listeners could think about this and reply back uh to us with answers to the questions um for themselves as well but chris um if you can live anywhere in any fantasy world that uh that you've read and your long history of reading fantasy, uh, where would you live and why? Wow. Um, wow. That's a really good question. I, I would say if I was going to live on any world, it would have to be middle earth. It would probably be, um, it would probably be gondolin. Because I think I would like to be surrounded by mountains in a beautiful elven city and just be able to contemplate the sky above me and and just be amazed. I don't know. I, that, that That's kind of a <laughs> – I mean, I could go a lot of different places, I guess. But yeah. because Tolkien is the first for me, it's got to be Middle Earth somewhere. So, okay. Um, okay. But Gondor during Isildur, you know, maybe I don't know. Yeah. All right. I mean, there's no wrong answers. Um, so it's just your opinion, right? I mean, yeah. Where where, where would you live? Uh, well, I, I I certainly wouldn't live in a city that was destroyed by Balrogs. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we all got to die sometimes, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> um death by Balrog is not my um 
favorite way to go. Unless you're Glorfindel. No, nah, dude, I'm going to be sleeping in my house and one of them bastards is just going to step on it and I'll be dead. So it's not going to be a huge <laughs> deal. I won't feel it. Uh, all right. Where would I live? Um, I, I think I, I got to go with Middle Earth as well. And I'm going to go with uh, Rivendell um, because for a couple of reasons, uh, Rivendell is the epitome of peace on Middle Earth. Um, I think Rivendell was only briefly besieged by Sauron in the Second Age. Um, but for the most part, it, it held out against Sauron. Uh, and that was the only time that violence came to Rivendell. But this is a place where you could uh, enjoy the the majesty of the Misty Mountains. Um, it, it's It's got a beautiful river that runs through it. It's got a great house where you could sit by the fire and think, or you can go into the Hall of Fire and hear songs from Noldor who are around uh, in the First Age or... Uh, passing Dunedain that would tell you about the the history of uh, their fallen kingdoms in the third age of Middle Earth, or you might come across an old hobbit working on his poetry, um, listening to some music or eating some and drinking, eating some good food, drinking some wine. So I'm going to go with uh, Rivendell. Not a bad choice. Um, wish I had thought of it first, but you know, that's all right. We can't all be Dave. No Balrogs. <laughs> to speak of no but they are your neighbors uh yeah i guess uh doran's bane was was pretty close to to rivendell now that i think about it <laughs> uh, all right okay so let's move on so this is questions three we got to move move on here we got the second question if you could be anyone in any fantasy book who would it be aragorn Oof. It would be Aragorn. I would be Aragorn. Really? Aragorn? Why? Why Aragorn? Yeah. Great choice. I mean, he's a great um, hero. For a lot of reasons. Um, Aragorn was always had a, a dignity to him and a self-assurance and a, a leader vibe that anyone would follow him. And he didn't do anything except be himself. He he captured the love of an elven woman who had lived thousands and thousands of years and <clears throat> talked her into putting away her immortality to live a few very brief, hopefully happy years before he would die and she would go too. What kind of love do you have to have in your heart for somebody to put aside your immortality? What kind of a person do you have to be in order to have someone consider doing that for you? And the fact that you bring the tale to a close by marrying this woman, by healing all of three ages worth of conflict between gods and men and elves and everything else to bring peace and prosperity to the land and to do it all in such a way that everyone accepts it and, and thinks it's good. Yeah. Give me all that. Somewhere Michael Moorcock is throwing up at that. Yeah. Well, somewhere Michael Moorcock is, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, very, very well said. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so <laughs> 
<laughs> who would you be? Who anybody in any book? Who would you be? So I think we're going to have like a, a Tolkien themed questions three because I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Bilbo. Bilbo is um, he he's the the homebody who wants nothing more than to stay at home, read his books, um, not be bothered by wizards and dwarves, but goes off, has a fabulous adventure, comes back with a love of mountains, and after an unsettling interlude, gets to retire, hanging out with the elves in Rivendell and sitting around writing his memoirs, composing poetry, and gets to go to the Undying Lands at the end. That's fair. All of that is fair, sir. Yep. I think that's a um, good choice. Yep. So the last question in questions three, um, and, you know, as as we go, we're still figuring out a lot of this stuff. But uh, I don't know. May, maybe this is something we might want to – this question is sort of similar to the previous one. but So we might want to come up with a third question in questions three. But as it stands, the question is, if you could be friends with anyone from the fantasy genre, who would it be and why? Gandalf. What other reason do you need is he's friggin' Gandalf. I I can't argue with that. <laughs> that's what I think that's the perfect <laughs> answer. That's we'll we'll, we'll actually I'm going to I'm going to agree with you and say I same reason, same explanation. We are in perfect accord. That's it for this episode of the Fantasy Canon Podcast. Join us next time when we will discuss Arrows of the Queen, uh, the first book in the Valdemar trilogy by Mercedes Lackey. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. This helps us reach more listeners and to do more episodes. Until then, you can join the conversation at www.thefantasycanon.com or send us an email at thefantasycanon at gmail.com. Our Twitter, Twitter handle is at the Fantasy Canon, and you can find us on Facebook at the Fantasy Canon page. Thanks for listening. Namarie. Good reading to all of you. <laughs>